You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. There's a widespread sentiment today among many professing Christians in this country that goes like this. I love Jesus, but not the church. Now, from a biblical perspective, this is quite odd. Because in Matthew 16, Jesus declares, I will build my church. Jesus is the architect of the church. He created it. And in Ephesians 5, we read that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He died for the church, so that as Titus 2 says, he might form a people for his own possession. Now, today, many Americans who profess Christ may be so individualistic that we find the church to be an irrelevance or a nuisance. But if we really love Jesus, ought we not love what Jesus intends to do? In fact, an honest reading of the Scripture shows us that when we come to Christ... It's not for us to remain some isolated Lone Ranger Christian. Rather, we are added to a people, to the universal church, the the people of God throughout the ages. And more than that, Hebrews 10 tells us that we must not neglect to meet together. Each believer is to be part of a local church, a local manifestation of Christ's universal church where we regularly gather with other believers. And so, friends, we can say with great certainty the local church is a very important part of God's plan for our lives and our spiritual growth. And this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 18, we come to the fourth of five sermons that Jesus preaches in the Gospel of Matthew. And this fourth sermon is largely about the community life of the local church. And that's what we're going to begin to take on today. And we're going to see three points First, we're going to see the ethic that defines greatness and really even just participation in God's kingdom. Second, we're going to see how we should and should not interact with each other in the local church. And then third, we're going to see three warnings that stand behind these commands. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 18, and let's start with our first point in which we see the ethic that defines greatness and really even just participation in God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You might remember in our recent sermons, we've seen that Jesus and his disciples have been traveling throughout Gentile territory as he has been investing in them and preparing them for the things that will soon take place. But now Jesus finally brings them back home. He brings them to Galilee. And it's here that we pick up today. And the disciples now ask Jesus to name the greatest person in his kingdom. Now understand that for them, this is not merely some academic question. Because a parallel in Luke 9.46 tells us that an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Now this is quite sad. After all of their travels, after seeing the mighty works of Jesus, that he fed the 5,000 and he walked on water and he fed the 4,000, 
after watching Jesus extend God's mercy to the Gentiles, after the glory of the transfiguration, what do the disciples want to talk about as they go back home? Any of that? No. They want to argue amongst themselves about their own self-importance. I think you can almost hear it, right? Peter says, well, boys, it's obvious when we get to Jerusalem and Jesus is crowned king, I'm going to be prime minister, right? I mean, after all, Jesus said, I've got the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then maybe one of the other disciples says, yeah, Peter, but a few minutes later, he told you to get behind him, Satan. And then maybe John or James says, well, you know, we were selected to go up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. The rest of you guys were left on the bottom. And I'm sure all the disciples had their own reasons to think that they might rate the highest in Jesus' estimation. The disciples are filled with arrogance, with self-assertion, and this leads them to division, to discord, and to strife. And eventually Mark 9 tells us that Jesus actually calls it out. But even though Jesus calls attention to their misconduct, the disciples still want an answer to their question. Well, Jesus, who is the greatest among us? That is to say, who will have the best position of the lot of the disciples when Jesus is crowned king? But even in asking this question, the disciples reveal yet another tragedy, which is that Jesus had just spent a bunch of time preparing them for what is to come. And tragically, the disciples haven't paid any attention. Because three times in chapters 16 and 17, Jesus told them, yes, he was soon going to Jerusalem. But that when he got there, he wasn't going to be honored or crowned king. Rather, Matthew 16, 21 says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is not soon going to Jerusalem to establish a government, but to suffer rejection, humiliation, and death. And yet here are the disciples arguing about who should get to be what position in Jesus' cabinet. They've totally missed the point, at least for the moment. After Jesus rose from the dead, they'll remember this and understand it a bit clearer. But prior to the cross, friends, they were clueless. Moreover, not only have the disciples failed to grasp what Jesus has taught them is going to happen in Jerusalem, they failed to grasp what Jesus wanted from them. Because Jesus taught them in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, Jesus has not promised us power and glory and wealth in this life. He has promised us trouble. And he's told us to follow him anyways, that we should deny ourselves for his sake. And yet here are the disciples arguing with each other about self. Power and prestige is shameful. And yet if we're honest, we each can probably admit that we've done the same thing squabbling with other people, maybe even with fellow believers, for influence, for power, because we have preferences, and we know our preferences are right, and we want our preferences enacted. Or we want position, we want authority, we want to be lauded by people. Friends, it's very natural and sinful to want to climb to the top over other people, to see our views enacted, and ourselves glorified. And that's what the disciples are doing here. 
they want to know which one of them gets to be exalted over the rest of their comrades. And so they ask Jesus for an answer. And he gives them one. But it's not the answer that they want. Look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A little child standing nearby, and Jesus puts this child right in the middle of the disciples. He's going to use this child to teach them an object lesson. That the disciples need to turn and in some way become like this child. Now, this is a very famous statement, and honestly, it's very often misinterpreted. I don't know about you, but I've heard this verse talked about in the past, and people say, well, what Jesus is saying here is that what he wants from us is a childlike faith, a simple faith that doesn't get bogged down in thinking about complex, complexities of theology, that doesn't have a lot of questions. It's just kind of a blind leap of faith. Is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't think so. I don't think that this child is an example of faith at all. Because in the next verse, Jesus tells us what this child is an example of. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The child is an example of humility, not faith. Now, what's humility? Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride is about self-assertion and self-aggrandizement. Pride says, I am important, I am worthy, I am able. But humility recognizes our profound need and our personal inability. And that's why a small child is an excellent example of humility. You know, I've got a son, he, he just turned three, and he can do some things on his own. He can talk a lot, and sometimes he can kind of jump, and he can make a big mess. But there are lots of other things that he cannot do. He cannot go get himself lunch from a restaurant, right? He cannot give himself a bath. He is dependent on other people to help him. And that's why a small child is an excellent picture of humility. Because a small child isn't saying, look at me, I want to be the president. No, he's a walking picture of need and dependence. And what Jesus says is this trait of humility marks out greatness in his kingdom. That's totally different than the world around us, right? In our, in our world, we value power and prestige and celebrity. Four billion people last week watched Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And they didn't watch it to see an expression of humility. Right? They watched it to see the ostentation of royalty and wealth and power. That's what the world loves. But it isn't so with God. Romans 2 says, God shows no partiality. Worldly position and glory, a big bank account, a good IQ, authority, none of that commends us to God. And friends, if in your life you have an unhealthy preoccupation with amassing stuff, with being over other people, with looking down on other people, friends, that is evidence of sinful pride. And this contrast between humility and pride is going to be a major theme that we see in the next three chapters of this book. In Matthew 20, Jesus says it plainly about the church. He says, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The Christian community is not a place for self-assertion. Rather, Jesus says greatness in his kingdom is about service. And service is another expression of humility. Because pride says, I'm important, you serve me. But humility says, I'm willing to suffer inconvenience and personal cost to serve you. Service is a denial of self. It is an expression of love. And Jesus says that marks out greatness in his kingdom. And those aren't just empty words. Because Jesus is the supreme example of this kind of humble service. Think about Philippians 2. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, God the Son was with the Father and the Spirit in eternal blissful fellowship, dwelling in resplendent glory, worshipped endlessly by the angels. And yet he chose to humble himself. In obedience to the Father, he set aside his divine prerogatives and he took on the limitations of humanity. And as he became a human, he didn't come as a celebrity. He didn't come as an emperor. He came as a simple carpenter. He lived a true human life and he died. And he didn't die at the age of 105 in a palace of splendor. He submitted himself to the lowest, the most wretched, humiliating, and painful death. Death on a cross. And why? Why did he subject himself to this? Because Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die as an act of service for you and for me to pay a debt that we could not pay, to satisfy the holy and just wrath of the Father and to bring us into a new relationship with God. Friends, is this old news to us today? Are we sitting here saying, yeah, I've heard this before. This is the gospel. That's why you're in church today. Let us praise God for the gospel. If you are asleep this morning, wake up. Jesus Christ has died for you. That is true humility. That's what Jesus did. And he who in his nature is the greatest, the greatest, he's also the greatest on the metric of his humble service. And friends, he calls on us to follow his example. Paul tells us we need to have the same mindset that Jesus had. To live this life with humility. To have a mindset that puts the needs of others above the comforts and convenience of self. And we need to do this, friends, because this is something that God loves and honors and rewards. James 4 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's what Jesus did. He humbled himself and now he's greatly exalted. Philippians 2 says, because of his humility, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, humility is something that God promises to reward in us too. But, and this is very important, humility is not optional. Humility is not just a good thing that we should pursue. Humility is a necessary thing which we must pursue. Look back at verse 3 in our passage. Humility is not only the standard of greatness in the kingdom. It is also the prerequisite to entering the kingdom. Jesus says this explicitly. Unless you turn and become like children, that is unless you adopt this childlike humility, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus means what he says. Now, at first, we might bristle at this. After all, we say, well, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Ephesians 2 tells us it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how can Jesus say humility is a prerequisite to entering the kingdom? Because humility is a recognition of our total inability and dependence upon God. And friends, if we don't have that mindset, how can we ever really come to Christ? If we don't recognize the awfulness of our sin and see how it has deprived us of any ability to reach God on our own. If we think I've got sufficient merit to stand in God's presence apart from the work of Christ. If we believe we have no need for a Savior, then how can we be saved? There's a reason Jesus said back in his first sermon in chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Believing, friends, the people who inherit God's kingdom are those who are aware of their spiritual poverty, their own inability, and their desperate need for God's grace. That is foundational to a right relationship with God. And the person who approaches God without humility, who approaches God with pride, with self-assurance and confidence in his own merit, that person will not stand in the judgment. So we must have humility. Yet notice how Jesus frames this issue for his disciples. He says, unless you turn, that is repent, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a warning, isn't it? It's kind of startling to us. After all, I mean, you know, we may think, well, Jesus' disciples were saved, right? Back in chapter 14, we're told that they worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the son of God. So now why does Jesus put this issue to the disciples with this strong warning? about their failure to obtain the kingdom. Because in this scene, the disciples are not acting like believers. They're arguing with one another out of a profoundly misguided sense of pride about their own greatness. They are not evidencing the humility that defines participation in the kingdom. And so Jesus rebukes them with this warning. And friends, there is something important for us to learn here. Often when we see people we care about who are behaving in a sinful way, very often our first instinct is to want to reassure ourselves that they belong to God. Pay no attention to what they're doing. I know they're okay because I remember in the past that they made a profession of faith or they got baptized or they said some good things about Jesus once. But you know, the Bible never tells us that we should respond to the reality of sin among professing believers by conducting this kind of deep search of the past. Rather, what the Bible does is it tells us about the reality of sin among professing believers, and it responds by issuing warnings about their behavior. And that's what Jesus does here. 
Jesus is warning the disciples that their lives do not look like the kind of life that has been transformed by his grace. And so Jesus says, you guys need to repent. You've got to change your mind about your conduct, which is going to change what you're actually doing. And he's trusting that those who truly belong to him will respond. Now, we might not like this approach. We may be uncomfortable with the Bible's warning passages. We may wish that God would just give us simple reassurances. But we've got to remember, friends, that many people who profess faith in Jesus are self-deceived. Maybe some of us who are here today are self-deceived. And God uses warning passages like these to wake the self-deceived up and show them you still need to come to Christ. In fact, as Jesus spoke these words in that room, at least one of the people there was not converted. For Judas was there. And Jesus will say about him it would have been better for him if he had never been born. So friends, when we come across a warning passage like this, we've got to examine ourselves. If we don't belong to Jesus, we need to repent and believe. And if we do belong to Jesus, we need to look at this and take a hard look at ourselves and our own pride. And we need to confess it to Christ and turn from it. Friends, we need to be warned because pride is totally antithetical to salvation and humility is the foundation of true faith. And friends, if you are marked by pride, if you're always wanting to lift yourself up, either by getting accolades of people or just in, inwardly saying, oh, I, I'm better than all these people around me, then I call on you to repent. Remember, you are a sinner in dire need of God's mercy and reflect on the cross. Nothing will humble us like reflecting on the cross. Jesus had to go through all of that torment to rescue me and you from the depths of our evil. That is a sure cure to pride. And it is also a call to follow Christ's example and lovingly serve others around us, particularly here in the church. Well, we come now to our second point, and here we're going to see how we should and should not interact with each other in the local church. Look at verse 5. Jesus continues, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now Jesus continues, and as he does, he changes his argument a bit. In the first four verses, it's about our need for childlike humility. But now he starts talking about our obligations to other people. And he describes these other people using the language of children. What's he mean? Is Jesus actually speaking about literal children here? Or is he speaking about some other group metaphorically by talking about Children. Well, I think it's quite possible that Jesus means this statement literally. After all, he's just put an actual child in the midst of the disciples. And when he talks about such a child, he may be saying, a child such as the one who's standing in your midst. And if this is what Jesus means here, and I think that it is what he means in part, then we should understand him to be saying something like this. Believing, friends, we need to treat children well. We need to welcome them as a part of our community in the local church. We need to take care of them. We need to protect them. We need to include them in what we do. And this would be very countercultural because in the ancient world, children were treated with total derision. They were often mistreated. But Jesus loved children. We're going to see this in the next chapter of our book. Matthew 19, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and went away. Jesus welcomed children, he prayed for children, he blessed children, and that is a great thing to do. 
And if we're Jesus' people, that's how we need to treat children too around here. But we also need to know that just as Jesus loves children, he will execute fierce vengeance upon those who wrong children. And this is an important truth for us today because we live in a society that has wronged many children. Over the last decades, millions of unborn children were lawfully murdered as a result of the Roe decision. And even though Roe has been overturned by the Supreme Court, many states today are presently trying to permit this terrible slaughter to continue. Friends, we need to know that Jesus hates the murder of the unborn. In the same way, we need to know that Jesus hates the exploitation and abuse of children that goes on throughout our society. Tragically, recent years have shown us that much abuse has gone on in churches and parachurch organizations that claim the name of Christ. And I'm not only talking here about Roman Catholicism. In 2019, Houston Chronicle ran an expose on child sexual abuse within hundreds of churches that were part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Friends, this is a problem even within so-called evangelical churches. And we need to know Jesus hates this exploitation of children, and he will fearsomely avenge it. It's hard to think of a worse way to die than what Jesus describes here, having a big stone hung around your neck and drowning. But Jesus says something worse than that awaits all who unrepentantly hurt children. And we're going to see in a minute he's talking about eternal condemnation. So I do think on one level Jesus here is talking about children. But I don't think that's the only or even the primary focus here. Because look at verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus doesn't just talk about children. He speaks of little ones who believe in me. Focus seems to be on belief, not age. So I understand Jesus here to be primarily talking about those who approach him with childlike humility, those who recognize their helplessness and their great need for a Savior, who cast themselves upon Jesus' mercy. He's talking about believers. And if that's the case, then what Jesus is doing here is he's telling us as believers how we need to interact with each other. So how should believers treat other believers? And Jesus says we've got to receive other believers. And Jesus has used this verb receive before in Matthew's gospel. And the vast majority of the uses are back in chapter 10. Got a Bible turn over to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions because he's about to send them on a missionary journey throughout Galilee. And he says, as you travel, you're going to encounter various responses. And he describes the positive responses that they're going to encounter as being received. Matthew 10, verse 40, Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Drop down a bit. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now notice in verse 42 here, Jesus uses the same language. He equates the disciples with the little ones. So I think that tells us we're on the right track in our interpretation here. Now what Jesus tells his disciples in these verses is that some people will receive them as being true representatives of God. And when they do, they're going to deal with Jesus' disciples generously and hospitably. Elsewhere in chapter 10, Jesus talks about people who receive them as giving them food and board. 
In verse 42, he says receiving them can be something as simple as giving them a cup of cold water. So the idea of this verb receive in chapter 10 is rendering love, service, hospitality, and generosity. That's what Jesus wants believers to do for one another. He wants us to do that broadly for all believers that we encounter. But especially since this, this chapter, Matthew 18, ultimately dovetails in a discussion of the local church, we need to understand that Jesus is telling us here, this is how we need to treat each other in the local church. That because of our shared faith, we ought to receive one another in Jesus' name. That is, because of our common love in Christ, we should lovingly and generously and hospitably serve one another. And this is consistent with what Jesus said in verses 1 to 4, where he said we need to be humble. Because we saw in those verses, humility means rendering loving service. As Jesus has lovingly served us, we should lovingly and selflessly serve one another. That's the logic here. And this tells us an important truth. The local church is not simply a lecture hall where we come together once a week to hear a message and then disperse and not interact with each other again until the next week. No, the local church is to be a community of people who care for each other. And to do that, that means we've got to know what's going on in each other's lives so we know how to help each other when we need to. The New Testament is so clear about this. Listen to 1 Peter 4. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Again, we see love and service and hospitality and generosity. That's what Jesus wants in the local church generally. That's what Jesus wants in our local church. So how are we doing with these things? Let me ask you, do you spend any time between Sundays ever talking to any other church members? If not, why not? Now, Genesis 2 tells us it's not good for man to be alone, right? God designed us to be in a community together, to have friends. And believing friend, you are in a room with other people who share the most important commonality in life with you. You are in a room with other people who love Jesus. These are the people that we have covenanted to live alongside. So we don't want to push each other away and keep each other at arm's length. We should try to spend some time together. And by that, I don't just mean you should try to spend time with Daniel and me, right? I mean, we want to spend time with you, but we want the members to spend time with each other. That's the idea here. This week, call someone in the church that you don't usually talk with and chat about life or get a meal. Have someone over to your house. Pray together. It doesn't have to be some grandiose thing, right? Remember, Jesus says you're receiving each other if you just give each other a cold cup of water. But believing friends, are we even making that effort to receive and lovingly serve our brothers and sisters here? Is there anyone here that you are serving and loving and being generous and hospitable towards? Jesus, in his word, expects and commands that. And more than that, he promises to reward it. Just as in chapter 10, here again, Jesus says, if you serve one another, you're serving me. That is, if we show hospitality and service towards one another because of our common faith in Christ, it's like we're serving Jesus himself. And he will reward this. Because Jesus is going to say in chapter 25, on the last day, he will commend believers because they have rendered service to one of the least of these brothers. And he says, as you did that, you did it to me. Friends, there is a great reward for being generous towards one another. 
So we've seen how we should treat one another. But now Jesus tells us how we should not treat one another. As he describes a fate worse than death for the person who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, in Greek, the verb translated cause to sin is uh, skandalizo. And this verb is often translated in the New Testament to stumble. You say, well, what's that mean? I think there's a few different ideas in play here. Number one, I think that we have to understand this verb as, in part, a persistent, unrepentant failure to carry out the instruction of verse 5. An unending refusal to ever serve or love a brother or sister in the Lord. Friends, if we withhold the love and service and generosity and hospitality that we ought to be showing to fellow believers, I think we really need to do some serious self-examination as to whether we belong to Christ. Say, wow, that's really harsh. Well, listen to what Jesus says about not receiving one another in Matthew 10. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Just as in our passage, Jesus indicates a failure to receive those who ought to be received in his name suggests that we're on a path for a fate worse than death. Loving participation in the community of believers and lovingly serving one another is not an optional part of the Christian life. You say, well, how do you know that, Ben? Well, let's listen to 1 John 3. This is the book that tells us the tests of true conversion. And here's what 1 John 3.14 says. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And love there isn't some nebulous emotion because four verses later he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Real believers ought to be characterized by lovingly caring for one another. But I think there's another aspect to this verb, scandalizo. Because often in the New Testament, this verb is used to speak of stumbling, professing believers into apostasy. And friends, this is a common problem today. When I was in college, I went to a nominal Christian university, and I took a religion degree. Of the 11 faculty members, 10 were atheists, and two of them loved to brag how they would stumble kids who'd come up from the church by asking them questions that they didn't know how to respond to, and they, these kids would deconvert. They would fall away. And these professors loved that. Friends, that is evil. Trying to draw people away from Christ. Jesus will avenge it. But I also think a third scenario is in view in this verb. Not just stumbling a believer into apostasy, but simply enticing a fellow believer into sin. And I say that because, after all, that is the situation in which Jesus gives this warning, right? The disciples have managed to stumble themselves into sin because they're arguing with one another about who's the greatest. They're causing each other needless provocation and strife. And what I would say is, believing friends, we have enough problems with temptation caused by the world around us. We don't need to be tempting each other into further sin. If you're, in, if you're tempted to want to entice a fellow believer here into some sin, maybe by causing division, getting a team together to you know, push an agenda, or maybe because you want to entice someone here into some kind of sexual or financial impropriety, or maybe even we just wind up being tempted to commit the sin that Paul warns about, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, being aware that a brother or sister has a weakness, 
a conscience issue. And we say, I don't care. I want to do what I want to do. That's sin. Putting alcohol in front of a brother or sister who struggles with alcoholism is sin. Eating halal food in front of a brother or sister who has come out of Islam is probably for that brother or sister sin. Urging someone to do something that they in their conscience do not believe they have the liberty to do is sin. And these aren't small issues. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I don't want to destroy my brother. All of that is the opposite of the godly humility that we're called to, to here to serve one another. And drawing the people of God deliberately into sin is something that God will discipline and judge. That must not be how we interact with each other. No, friends, we must look after each other and serve one another because that's how Christ has treated us. All right, we come now to our last point. Here we're going to see three warnings that stand behind the commands we just looked at. And we find the first of them in verse 7. Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus has just been talking about temptation Uh, believers who tempt one another into sin. And it seems that as he did so, as he's thinking about temptation, he just reflects on how evil this world is, how much temptation there is that besets believers. And Jesus responds by saying, woe. And when he says woe, when the Bible uses the word woe, it is a pronouncement of judgment. Jesus is sentencing this world to judgment here because this world so often stumbles believers into sin. It stumbles us by appealing to the flesh, by making us want to do what looks good and feels good and makes us feel important. It stumbles us by trying to entice us to believe lies that are contrary to the Scripture. It entices us like the disciples were enticed here, to arrogance and pride. And Jesus says, look, judgment's going to come on the world. And yet, as he does so, he says, look, temptation is necessary. After all, God is sovereign in this world, and God has enacted a plan. And in this plan, for this time, we live in a fallen world. God knows that we will face and encounter temptation and that we must battle for holiness. That is something that God has purposed. And yet, that is not an excuse for sin. James 1 tells us God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is good and he wills good for his people. And yet in this evil world, fallen people commit evil and God allows this. And more than allowing it, Genesis 50 tells us God can use it for good. God can and does use specific events of human evil to advance his plan in this world. That's not a mitigation of personal responsibility. But it is something that we need to know. Temptation is something we'll face. And yet, even though temptation is something that God has willed that we should face in this life, once more Jesus renews his woe. It is not an excuse for, for, for temptation, for stumbling. Yet, despite the, tempta- the necessity of temptation, woe, certain judgment will inevitably fall upon the person by whom that temptation comes. Any person who stumbles a believer is liable to God's judgment. And that's the warning of verse 7. But this first warning leads very naturally to a second, which tells us that sin is not simply dangerous for the person that entices another person into sin. Sin is also dangerous for us. Sin is not safe. Sin kills. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it should, because Jesus said almost these exact same words back in chapter 5 when he talked about sexual sin. But now that he's talking about pride and humility, he repeats this warning. And that must tell us this warning is important if Jesus repeats it. So let's look at it closely. Probably the most, most surprising thing to us here is that it seems like Jesus is telling us to lop parts of our body off. That sounds crazy, right? Does he mean this literally? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But before we talk about that, I want you to see something else here. In verse 8, Jesus talks about people being thrown into eternal fire. In verse 9, Jesus talks about people being cast into hell. Friends, we need to know that hell is real. Jesus taught more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And Jesus taught about hell four times more than he taught about heaven. Hell is real. And Jesus says here it endures forever. And we need to know, friends, hell is terrible. As Jesus speaks of hell here, he uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley uh, near Jerusalem that in Jesus' day was the home of a bonfire where the people of Jerusalem burned their garbage. It was a blazing garbage dump. And its fire never went out because people were always bringing it more and more trash. And so Gehenna became a symbol to first century Jews to describe hell. And Jesus uses this same language to describe hell. He says it's like Gehenna. It's an ever-burning dump. It's a horrible picture, which speaks of an even more horrible reality. This is the final destiny of the lost. This is the tragedy of the ages. And Jesus talks about hell here. And we say, well, why? Why does Jesus have to be such a downer? Because Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth that our sin merits this. Not just certain types of sin. Right? It's easy to say, well, you know, the Holocaust, of course Hitler deserves hell. But, you know, pride, eh, that's part of our culture. No! Paul says in, in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Any sin merits eternal condemnation. Now, this is an unpopular doctrine today, and that shouldn't surprise us, because the first lie in human history is when the serpent hissed the denial of the doctrine of judgment to Adam. We always want to be deceived on this point. We always want to imagine that there is no reckoning for our sin in the end. But friends, there is. And because there is an accounting, because there is a coming judgment, Jesus urges in verses 8 and 9 that we need to do whatever we have to do to not be thrown into hell because of our sin. As a Puritan John Owen wrote, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he uses very extreme language to describe that. Talking about lopping off our hands or our feet or our eyes. It is very extreme. But Jesus says dramatic action like that is to be preferred over keeping your body intact and being thrown into hell because you never dealt with your sin. Now, should we take Jesus' words here literally? Is he actually saying mutilate yourself? I don't think so. Because back in chapter 15, he tells us the true source of evil is not our eye or our hand or our foot. Rather, he says out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and murder. And that's why we can look at Jesus' words about dismemberment here and understand that he's not prescribing amputation. Rather, Jesus knows that our real problem is with our hearts 
And the surgery we need is the circumcision of our hearts. We need our hearts to be made new. We need our hearts to be cleansed by God. But we also, friends, must war against our sin. Because Hebrews 12 tells us, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so whatever we must do to resist the sins that so easily beset us, we've got to do it. Now, I don't know what those sins are in your life, but you do. And where you detect vulnerability in your life to temptation, shore that up so that you do not give the flesh an opportunity. Socially, do you always hang out with people who bring out the worst in you? Stop hanging out with them. Does the presence of technology in your life endlessly summon you to give in to your evil desires? Get rid of it. Does watching the news puff you up? Because you could say, well, I'm not like those people. Stop watching it. Get rid of whatever is stumbling you into sin. Get the stumbling blocks out of your life as best as you can. That's Jesus' point here. Because the cost of indulging in unrepentant sin is just so high. But there's great news, which is that in Christ is forgiveness of sin. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Ephesians 2 says, now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in Jesus Christ is the promise of adoption into God's own family. Galatians 4 says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might have the adoption as sons. God offers us life in Christ. And so we need to turn from our sin. We need to give it to Jesus. Jesus died on the cross because of our sin. He bore the wrath we should have borne. And in him is transforming grace and newness of life. And a right relationship with God. So that as Paul says in Romans 8, God is for us. And that's great news today, that God is no longer our enemy but our Father if we're in Christ. But this leads to the last warning Jesus gives here. Because the truth that God is for his people is not good news for those who want to stumble us and bring us harm. And that's what Jesus says in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So what's that mean? People have been asking that question for 2,000 years. But, again, there are many questions that we can ask. Are the little ones children here or believers? Is Jesus here teaching that children or believers have guardian angels? It was a common idea in first century Judaism, although we don't find it anywhere else in the Bible. Maybe these angels perform some other function. And Jesus doesn't tell us much about them here. Some commentators suggest the angels here aren't actually angels at all. Because in Acts 12... The Greek word that's often translated angel is used not to describe an angelic being, but the disembodied spirit of a dead believer. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that dead believers become angels. They don't. But this same Greek word can sometimes speak of disembodied spirits. And so maybe the idea is that the disembodied spirits of dead believers dwell in the presence of God. The truth is there's lots of possible interpretations of this verse. And there's not a lot of data to help us understand exactly what it means on a really technical level. But while we might not understand this verse on a small level, I think we can get the point on a big level. And the point is this. God profoundly cares about his people. God has our back. And so anyone who wants to harm us or stumble us needs to be on notice because God will defend and avenge his people. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so God says to the world and those who would stumble his people into sin, 
And God says to us, if we walk in unrepentant sin, that we need to be warned. Woe to the one who stumbles a believer. The judgment of hell is real and it awaits unrepentant sin and God will avenge all those who harm children and who harm his people. So to conclude, if you never come to Christ today, I hope you see you stand in grave peril because judgment's real and it's coming and the only way of salvation is to turn from your sin in repentant faith and cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ because he is God and man and he has died and risen. But today, if you're a believer, I want you to consider, where are you marked by the most pride? How are you going to counteract that to walk in humility? And how are you loving and serving fellow believers here today? May God grant us true humility and love for one another that resembles the humility and love that we've been shown by Christ.